This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome to Star Stuff, a podcast where we talk about space and science and technology and all of the things in between. Uh, Today, we're going to be focusing on career building in STEM and how that works, how people can get their careers in STEM, what issues may arise. Uh, And really, we're at the whim of our incredible guest speaker today, um, Elena Levine. So hi, Elena. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, of course, we're joined as always by co-host Haley, uh, Haley Osborne. Hey, Haley. Hi, everybody. Uh, So yeah, let's just get into it. Elena Levine is an award-winning professional speaker, STEM career coach, science writer, TEDx speaker, entrepreneur, and corporate comedian. That's fun. She writes Your Unicorn Career, a career column for Science Magazine, which is the basis of her forthcoming book, Create Your Unicorn Career. She's also the author of Networking for Nerds, um, and she's president of Quantum Success Solutions, where she's a prolific speaker and writer on uh, career development and professional advancement for STEM nerds and word nerds. And she has delivered over 850 keynotes, workshops, and training for clients in the United States, the EU, Mexico, Canada, Africa, Asia, and South America. Um, It says here you have had over 100 gigs in 2020. That's insane. Yeah. And uh, Levine's written over 500 articles in publications like Science, Nature, uh, Scientific American, National Geographic, Newswatch. I will say that was my dream uh, job when I was in college was to write for the uh, National Geographic. So that's amazing. Uh, World Economic Forum and Smithsonian. And she's a regular speaker and coach for the astronomical community and AAS, which uh, is exciting because we'll see you there in uh, very soon. Is that right? Yes. So excited. Yeah. Awesome. So there's there's a lot there's a lot to dive into here. <laughs> this is a huge bio. Um, I'm not even sure where to start. Maybe let us know what um, what would you think of as a, a unicorn career? Sure. And again, thank you so much for having me on. I love your podcast. Um, And I love thinking about star stuff. After all, that's what we're made of, right? That's right. So (laughs) when I, (laughs) when I think, when I think of a unicorn career, I think of a customized career that we get to create ourselves. It is aligned with our values, priorities, and goals. It allows us to solve the problems that bring us meaning. It allows us to use the skills that bring us joy And it allows us to define success and impact in the way that is appropriate and right for us. But most importantly, it allows us to be our authentic self 100% of the time. And astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmologists and planetary scientists and astronomy enthusiasts around the multiverse have the ability, we all have the ability to create our unicorn career. It's just a matter of taking data and analyzing opportunities that are aligned with the, the value that we have, our skills, our abilities, the things that we love to do. We are constantly looking, as astronomers always do anyway, for opportunities <laughs> to serve. 
that's what a unicorn career is. Constantly interesting. I love that. It's very much (laughs) like, um, and I know there's some back and forth on this. So I'm curious what your take on it though. Uh, It's the idea that you do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And there's like, there's some pushback on that because people are like, oh, that's not really achievable or work is work or there are all, all aspects of our work that's like that's difficult. Um, so how do you balance out like that feedback when it comes to like people sort of criticizing like the American dream or reality for that? How do you inspire people who who have that outlook? That's a really great question. And by the way, it's a question that I don't often get. So I really oh. appreciate you asking oh, okay. me that. I mean, and it just goes to show you the astronomers are always thinking of new ways to examine the universe. And this is a perfect example. So the way I think of it is, first of all, work is work. And you and I, we gots to get paid. We yeah. need money for food. <laughs> We need money for food, for rent. Uh, If you're like me, you probably have a very obsessive cupcake budget that you have to pay for as well. So (laughs) the reality is, is that, yeah, we work and it is work and we deserve to be paid what is appropriate for who we are, what our work is, what the market can can, uh, allow for. Mm -hmm. So we always have to be aware of the fact that money is a necessity in our society, wherever we are in the universe, at least at this moment. Um, But I do agree with this idea that if you pursue a career that for the most part brings you joy and brings out joy in you, then the work that you're doing becomes less of torture. It becomes Mm -hmm. less of a feeling of something that I don't necessarily want to look forward to. And since work is such a huge part of our experience, I mean, 40 hours a week is what typically we're supposed to be paid on paper. But you and I know, especially in the astronomy community, you're not working 40 hours a week. No No. graduate student or postdoc. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's Uh, not happening. Add nonprofit to that uh, qualifier. You get a whole new realm of (laughs) you have to love it. Exactly. And I, and by the way, I have literally no idea what nonprofit observatory you could possibly be referring to at this moment. No but idea. Yes, no. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. <laughs> it's, you're just talking in metaphors, right? Just metaphors at this point, yeah. <laughs> Hypotheticals. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if we're going to be spending so much of our days and our life working, the goal would be to be able to pursue a career where much of what we are doing in our workday, where we are being paid, are activities and tasks and skills that do bring us pleasure. And so that's what we're trying to do. And it is about finding a balance because no work, no job, no career is going to be 100% sandbox fun time the whole time. There will always be tasks that one has to do that nobody, that you don't really appreciate, that you don't necessarily even look forward to. And for many Mm -hmm. scientists and many science communicators, a lot of that is the administrative and the leadership tasks that are required to keep your career or your business going. I understand that. But the more we are honest with ourselves about what types of activities and tasks do bring us joy, and of course, the corollary to that is what tasks and skills bring us non-joy, bring us great unhappiness, the more we can design a unicorn career that is more appropriate for who we are. Yeah, and I think that's, that's awesome. an interesting, and we'll get into this later. I think Haley had a few questions about uh, specifically like women in STEM, um, but just thinking mm-hmm. like women in these these careers, these scientific technological careers, and even mine in marketing, um, where you've got the like 
you're always sort of thinking about like work-life balance and working to live, not living to work and how much that easier that is when you have a job you enjoy is that women sort of have to make a choice in their twenties and their thirties. That's seemingly unfair and you shouldn't have to, but that's sort of how it's proposed to us is, are you a mother or are you a career woman? And typically women who try to do both, like you can't win. There's no winning for a lot of women like in this, in this scenario. So I think being able to find a job that you truly love makes that not so much a choice, but you can have both. You can have a life and you can have a career that you love and that you get a lot out of. Um, it's not as black I believe and white. That's true. Mm-hmm. I agree. I believe that is absolutely true. It is, it is absolutely a spectrum, um, but it's very, very personalized. And that's why creating that unicorn career, that customized career is the way that we can navigate this. Because when we are faced with such huge challenges or huge um, weights on different portions of our life, like if we want to have a family or if we want to have children, and given the way society puts more of that weight, significantly more of that weight on the woman in the partnership or the woman Mm -hmm. in the family, we have to be, and I'm a woman, and we have to be honest with ourselves, what what is it that we truly want and need out of our holistic life the career is just a portion of that. The family is a major portion of that. I, I'd consider it to be even bigger than the, the career itself. And so by designing yeah. a unicorn career for yourself, the goal is to be able to create the balance that makes sense for you. It's not a 50%, 50%. It's a mm-hmm. balance that makes sense for who you are as a person and what your priorities are for your life and your career. And I call that becoming a career entrepreneur where you're looking for opportunities, just like any entrepreneur looks for opportunities where they can add value. If we become a career entrepreneur where we're looking for opportunities where we can add value individually ourselves, meaning I, Elena, know that I want to have a family. I want to have time to hike. I want to have time to run. I want to have time to cook at night for my family. So therefore, Mm -hmm. I'm going to create a career and look for opportunities where Mm -hmm. I can serve, where I can add value that allows me that time. That is a necessity in my life. And I think establishing boundaries with with your organization who you work for, I think that's really important too, is like, establishing those like after hours, like boundaries or when you're available, when you're not available, what you expect, uh, the time off you expect. And, and luckily, uh, Lowell observatory is pretty unique in that it, I feel like it really does encourage that balance. Like hourly staff get, uh, paid time off. Uh, you, we have flexible time off, so it's not two weeks a year and that's it. It's get your job done and do it well. Um, so I think those organizations really help, but I'm not sure. Uh, my background's in, in marketing for oil and gas giants, which was horrible. And I left it very specifically for what you were saying. I wasn't happy in it. Um, but I'm not sure how often that is or how that looks for women going into, or just people in general going into these STEM careers, what that work-life balance looks like outside of the observatory. Yeah, it looks so different for every person. And you're right about luck in the sense that we are lucky at this moment in time and space in this universe that particularly in the United States, there's more of an openness and an appreciation for 
um, specifically the European model of work and life, where there's an expected holiday. And when you leave at 5 p.m. or whatever, you're not expected to answer emails. And you, your, your family time is considered to be uh, a sanctuary that is not to be touched. So to be able to have that uh, in the United States, I think we're seeing more and more of that. And when I started my career many, many years ago, <laughs> you know, I remember saying to people, I actually bragged about this. I used to say, I am dating my career. I am married to my job. And I wore that as a badge of honor. And now, of course, so many years later, to be able to, to say something like that is is ridiculous. Now, for some people, that is still their joy to be married to their job or to be dating their their career or their organization. But what's really nice is that for those of us who don't want that relationship to go to the next step, there's now more of a cultural change and shift to being more open to individual employees having a true life outside of the work environment. Yeah. So um, speaking about like creating boundaries and everything, I feel like because uh, uh, my background is in physics, so I'm a woman in STEM and it was like it was almost I don't want to say it was specifically said to me, but it was very much implied that like with uh, when it comes to women, we have to work twice as hard to be taken seriously in STEM, you know, and, um, I know that it's really hard for people who are trying that hard to, uh, set these boundaries, right. Because they don't want to be like, Oh, don't contact me after work hours, because then they think maybe that's setting a bad precedent. Maybe that's, Mm. um, you know, maybe that is gonna cause me a, uh, to not get a promotion or something like that. And so what kind of advice would you give someone if they are looking to set those boundaries without, you know, like, uh, I don't know, taking two steps back type deal. That's a really good question. So the way I'm thinking about this is first of all, you have to understand the culture of the organization that you're going into the or the culture of the field, the culture of the region and the culture of the individual university, company, mm-hmm. nonprofit, institution, whatever it is. So the decisions that we make about our own individual lives are really going to be set on a test bed almost of the culture that we are engaging. So I need to understand what moves the culture, what um, what is considered to be a priority in the culture. I need to understand even what vocabulary is used to describe the individual employees and their 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 work life and their their holidays, their vacations. I, there's a lot that I need to research about the individual culture. And as you both know, having worked in different types of organizations uh, over your careers already, different communities, different fields, different industries have different cultures. And so there will be certain types of companies, certain types of institutions where I, as an individual, if I want to have that extra time, or if I don't want to feel like I'm pushing back, that this is not going to be a culture where I'm going to be able to thrive because Mm -hmm. it's not aligned with who I am. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we do when we're building careers is really doing a lot of research through our networking, through our building of relationships with individuals across different fields. We leverage those connections and those relationships to better understand what are the cultures that we are looking to engage so that if we know the rules of engagement, then we can determine 
first of all, is this a place where we're going to thrive? And second of all, we can determine the course of action that we take. So let me give you an example of the thriving aspect of it. So for many years, my degree is in mathematics. I have another degree in anthropology. I studied abroad in Cairo as a Boren fellow. Nice. <laughs> studied in Cairo? Thank you. Or I studied in Cairo. We're going going back to that at some point. (laughs) Okay. Put the pin in there. We'll come back to it. Inshallah. If God wills it, we'll come back to it. (laughs) Inshallah. So, uh, yeah. And I became, I was fluent in Arabic. I even did graduate study in Arabic. So it was a really wonderful experience. So when I was graduating, yeah. And by the way, for, for your audience, I just want to clarify, I did study, I came to the University of Arizona to become a theoretical astrophysicist. That was my goal. Um, I was seduced by the dark side, so please don't hold it against me (laughs) that I shifted my major, but I never, ever left the, it's astronomy and physics, like you both know, is like the godfather. Once you're in, you can't get out. So I never left the community. So I've been amongst astronomers and physicists my entire career. And I still work, as you know, with, with, with all sorts of Uh, different STEM professionals, including astronomers and physicists. You would love to chat with our, uh, the, our chief marketing and revenue officer, Dr. Danielle Adams. She's a, a cultural astronomer and she, um, studied astronomy in Arabic literature. It's so cool. You <gasps> she is somebody I wanted to talk to. Yes. Okay. You definitely have to connect me with her because when I was considering about going to graduate school, I had actually looked into um, studying the mathematics of the ancient Middle East. So particularly the Arab mathematicians in the oh Middle God. Ages. We got to get y'all together. That's so cool. Yes, we have, I have to get to y'all together. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe podcast 2.0. We need to get y'all talking about I this love stuff because it. it's fascinating. Just a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the way, for your audience, this is a great example of networking happening very spontaneously, yes. but the magic <laughs> that can occur. Yeah. I mean, I just love yeah. this. So I'd love to talk to her. So mashallah, as I was mashallah. pursuing, <laughs> ma- mashallah, exactly. exactly. Mashallah. So, <laughs> so as I was considering different careers, I had looked into the world of management consulting. I knew that they loved scientists. They loved physical scientists and engineers. I knew that they loved people with diverse backgrounds who spoke different languages. So I knew that there might be a really awesome place for me in a management consulting firm, some of the really big ones that many of your listeners know about. And in particular, there was one that I was really interested in. It's the marquee name. Everybody knows it. And I'm not going to say it on the air, but but everybody knows this management consulting firm. It's the top one in the world. And mm-hmm. I had applied for roles there and I wasn't getting any interviews. And whenever you are applying for a job, you always want to look at capture, capture the data points at the inflection point to be able to see where you can improve. So an inflection point inflection? is if there I'm applying. <laughs> great. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Great question. So glad you asked that. <laughs> I love it. We're like psychic. It's fantastic. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> so if I if I'm going back in time, I look for the moment where I'm trying to convert X to Y. So if I'm applying for a job, the mat, the marketing materials, the resume or CV, the cover letter. If I'm applying for a research position, the, the research statement, for example, all of those are designed to convert the mat, the marketing materials into an interview. So the inflection point is: Am I getting interviews? Is the conversion actually taking place? So if I see that I'm getting zero interviews. The inflection point leads me to the data point, which is that my marketing materials need to be improved upon, that I'm clearly not selling and marketing myself 
effectively. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, Preach, yeah, absolutely. I always, I always tell myself, similarly. like, I had to assume it's so hard. And I keep saying this as a woman, as a woman, this is the only perspective I have. Mm-hmm. So it could be very similar for, for men, but um, that kind of like uh, imposter syndrome, or I had a hard time yeah. being egotistical about my work because I didn't want to come off a certain way. But when I learned how to yes. market myself as if my skills were a commodity that they were blessed to get, uh, it was a yes. lot easier to like market myself because I was like, yeah, I actually, ha- I really do know what I'm talking about. I am really good at this. Um, which I think makes it easier to set boundaries later. But I, I, I see where you're oh, going yeah. with that, where like marketing yourself is a big part of that. Obviously, that's mm-hmm. I understand oh. that from a marketing perspective. But marketing, <laughs> as you both know, is everything. So mm-hmm. every engagement we have, when we write a grant proposal, we're not saying give me $5 million, my, uh, my work is cool, hashtag cool. We're saying <laughs> my work is important because of this reason. It will help mm-hmm. hopefully aim to solve this problem, which will have this ramification, which is why your investment will be give you a return. And mm-hmm. so that's a marketing document. Indeed, everything we do really boils down to marketing. When we give a pr- presentation or, or a poster, when we even have a meeting with somebody, a conversation, we are marketing ourselves. And the fact that you realize that is, I'm sure, been a win winning asset to you in building the career of your dreams and and getting the opportunities that are right for you. And that's the way we need to think is like, how can I better communicate my value in such a way that it'll convince the other party to make a decision to engage me further in a positive way? That's the definition of self-promotion, to encourage somebody to engage me further in a positive way. So we go back to our marketing materials. If we're looking at our, the, the spectrum of activities that lead to us getting a job and the inflection point was the conversion of, of marketing materials into interviews, that inflection point equaled zero, the data point equaled zero, which meant that my marketing materials were not doing an effective me- a measure. They weren't mm-hmm. taking an effective action to actually get me the interviews. All right. So I went back and I looked at my marketing materials, but to improve my marketing materials, I wanted to better understand the culture of that community, of that company. So I started reading blogs and articles that were even on the website of the company that were first year associates talking about a week in a life. Like, what is it like to be a first year employee at this company? Mm. And my goal was to find clues, little breadcrumbs that I could then incorporate into my marketing materials. But Instead of finding that, I actually found an even more important clue, and that was that this organization was not right for me. I would Mm. not thrive here, which was part of the reason why I wasn't getting the interviews because I wasn't marketing myself appropriately because it wasn't right for me. It Mm. was that what this, this organization thrived on associates working 17, 18, 20 hour days working in the mm. middle of nowhere. They, the, the blogs talked about how awesome it was to, you know, it was great. We were all, the team was uh, convening in the hotel room at three o'clock in the morning, having cold pizza together. It was so cool. And all I could think of was that sounded like torture to me. That yeah. is not an environment where I'm going to thrive. When mm-hmm. I realized that that culture was not aligned with who I was, it was 
fantastic because it freed me of this idea of this need and this craving to want to work for this organization. I realized Mm -hmm. it may be prestigious. It may be fantastic for other people, but -hmm. it will not be fantastic for me because it's not aligned with who I am. And when I realized that, then suddenly I was unburdened by a feeling of, oh, I'm not competitive enough. You mentioned imposter syndrome. I'm not good enough to get in. No, it's just not right for Elena. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. There will be organizations and cultures that are not right for you. And the research that you do in advance to find that out enables your success in other cultures that will value you for you. Yeah. And I think in that case, the best thing to change on your cover letter is uh, who it's addressed to. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. You got yeah. it. I, uh, I learned that I was actually a contractor in oil and gas and I liked that separation because I was almost shopping for my career for most of my 20s to understand what I wanted to do. And um, mm-hmm. I love the aspect of contracting because it gave me that like buffer where I was almost testing out the organization at the same time to see if it's one that I would want to like invest my career in. Um, oh, yeah. And you see my resume and it's like, you know, one year here, two years there. But in each step, I get closer and closer to what I was enjoying and really good at. So I, I value That's excellent that, that you did that that aspect because we come from like, uh, I, you know, I know the millennial generation experienced this, but, you know, uh, you know, you're going to university, you know, you're going to do something out of high school. That wasn't even a question. Uh, you're just going to be accustomed to having student debt or whatever. Um, and then you are going to work for a company and you are going to be there for 30 years. And then you are going to retire with a pension. Uh, and the career that I ended up in, that wasn't a reality. And it was something that I had to sort of accept that it's okay. I wasn't going to just jump into a career and be that person who was like, Oh, they've been working here since they were 22 and now they're 60. You know what I mean? Like that wasn't an option for me. So I had to like mourn that and get over it and then figure out like, that's still okay. Like my career is still going to be fine. Um, you know, I can, I can move away from a company if it's not serving my needs. I love that concept of mourning. I've actually written about how we don't, we're not taught to grieve professional loss of any kind. And it could be mm-hmm. professional loss that led, that was led, um, that, that was um, caused by something negative. Like when I was laid off, that was something negative, And I never really fully grieved it the way you grieve a personal loss. And as mm-hmm. such, it sort of festered and sat there for so many years burdening me. And it wasn't yeah. until I had a very profound personal loss that I began to realize, wait a second, the same tools and techniques that I'm using to mourn and grieve this personal loss, I can use to mourn and grieve and complete mm-hmm. the relationship with the professional loss. And there's right. nothing wrong with grieving and saying goodbye to an organization, a company, a field, and even a career that's done. You've you've graduated, so to speak, beyond it. If you mm-hmm. have, you can mourn it and then, as they say in personal loss, you know, complete the relationship and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote an article about that in my column for Science Magazine about how to is grieve professional loss. Is there a public Yes, link I can give you a link for that. Yeah. Great. We'll yeah, yeah. That the, the article, 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. I I, I know here you you do have a career column for Science Magazine, which is awesome. Um, but a link to that Thank would be really useful because I feel like that speaks to any like people who change their majors, people who are pursuing a major and then decide halfway through like this isn't what I want or like even like for me again I'm not specifically in STEM though technically now, now I am um it's something where I had uh my marketing agency and I wanted to leave Houston and so I had to sort of give that up and every job you start or every business you start even when it's successful and you change paths like whether you want to or not you just envision your life in that career or in that role and when you switch when you switch gears it's like you're mourning something that you had set yourself up for emotionally and mentally that now when you switch your track, you have to take a moment to like realize that's not what's going to happen now. And that's okay, but it still be send you reeling sometimes. Well, and change is hard for humans. As we know, job, any kind of change is typically hard for most humans. And, you know, when I left the U of A in 2009, I had started there, University of Arizona, I had started there when I was 17 years old was when I went there as a freshman. I couldn't drive, drink or vote, but I was doing astrophysics research as a 17 year old. And I grew up on that campus. I know that tree. I know that cactus. I know that building. That's Mm -hmm. where I worked on my mathematics problems. That's where I had my, you know, my experience with this, whatever. And Mm -hmm. so to then, and then I worked there for 13 years. So when I left, I was in my early thirties. It was like a piece of my heart was being ripped out. And of course, again, it was not to be equated with a personal loss that is very tragic. Again, like you were saying, this was my personal experience. It was Mm -hmm. so change. I mean, it was such a huge change for me. It was very hard to file it in my heart and my brain. And I think that if I had thought about it at the time, if I had known about these types of tools and this type of framework, of thinking about it from a professional law, from a personal loss that I could use some of those same tools, I think I would have actually, quote unquote, gotten over it better. It would have freed my heart for other things, but I didn't have that. It took me years to do that. And I think, you know, the idea of time, like what you were just talking about, about particularly early career professionals and even early career students who changed their major. I changed my major. I changed what I was interested in many times. And so I think when we think about time, we are often taught, particularly in astronomy, that, oh, you have to come in as a freshman and know exactly what graduate school and what kind of research and where in the world you're going to be working. And if you don't know that when you're 18 years old, there's something wrong with you. And I say that that's ridiculous. That is <laughs> absolutely silly. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And why Turkey, do we, they do, why do a we test think- in middle school to determine what your track is in high school that will then determine what your major is in university. Mm-hmm. Oh my I mean, God. That's insane. Nuts. It's like, insane. Oh, if 13, you need to know which, what track you're taking. Yeah. I mean, when I was 13, I, I knew I wanted to be a biochemist. When I was 14, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, when I was 15, I was going to be an actress. So, I mean, my goodness, yeah. that, 
So time is the key factor here is that what I want to let your, your listeners know is that these things take time to figure out. They take time to figure out what it is that you love to do, what it is that you're good at, and whether you love to do those things that you're good at. It takes exposure to different professionals, different professors, different people, diverse perspectives to give you insight into what you can do. I didn't wake up and say, I want to be a professional speaker and a corporate comedian. It took mm-hmm. years of me developing the technique while I was working for the University of Arizona and suddenly realizing, wait a second, I love speaking. After all, I've been on the stage. I've always been a performer. So I've been literally on the stage actually since I was born, which is another story, but but uh, <laughs> non-literally since I was five years old, I've been on the stage. So it would make sense that I would pursue a career where I'd get to perform. I get to be on stage. But I didn't think of a career as a professional speaker for myself when I was in school or when I had my first job or when I had my second job. It wasn't, it wasn't until later on in that second job when I was doing so many different workshops and speeches, marketing the program that I was overseeing for the community and doing physics fun nights and things like that, that I began to realize I love to be on stage. I love to be myself on stage, which is different mm-hmm. than acting. And because I can be myself as a speaker and I can incorporate comedy the way I want to be as myself, maybe this is something I can do professionally. Maybe this is something I can do where I get paid. And it wasn't until I started getting that exposure to different paths and learning about professional speaking that I began to think of it for myself. But that's where time, that's what time gives us. It gives us exposure to that diversity that gives us innovation, that gives us the ability to build a career that makes sense for us. So we do not have to rush it. Don't think that you're going to know exactly what you want to do when you're X age. I'm 47 and fabulous, and I don't know whether or not <laughs> I'm going to be doing something when I'm 49. This mm-hmm. year, as, a, as an entrepreneur, this year looks very different than it did last year, than it looked in 2020, certainly much, much different than it looked in 2019. But I will say that the networking that I did in 2021 has enabled me to implement strategies for success and services and deliver those services and market those services in new ways that I never expected to be doing a year ago. So a year ago at this time, the work that I'm doing today, I never would have expected. And that's just one year in my life. Can you imagine what I'll be doing next year? But more importantly, can you imagine what you'll be doing next year? I'm I'm really glad we got on this topic. Uh, We don't, we haven't really like talked about our personal experiences in detail on this uh, podcast yet, but I feel like this is a really good topic. this is a really good like open forum for this kind of stuff because um, I actually recently um, dropped out of grad school. Um, I w- I started here at Lowell Observatory as an educator when I was 18 years old, and wow. it was the best job I'd ever had. I was uh, work I was doing school right. I was uh, getting my degree in physics, and when I graduated, it was like 
it was this, this crazy period of time where everything was up in the air. I didn't really know what I wanted to do because like in, in the physics realm, it's one of those things where, uh, a lot of people will consider you like a failed physicist if you don't go to graduate school. And so I thought, okay, that's what I have to do. I have to go to grad school. And so, um, I ended up applying to graduate school. I got in, I, um, started a PhD program in applied physics and material science. And, um, half or it was like three quarters of the way through the first semester, I just realized that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. You know, the program that I had applied to, I hadn't thoroughly looked into it. I hadn't fully like appreciated what exactly it would be that I was going to be doing in this program. And so, um, I ended up switching to the master's program and that still wasn't quite the right fit for me. And so, um, I ended up leaving graduate school and, um, when I had started grad school, I had to be a graduate teaching assistant. And so they had me, uh, quit my job at Lowell and I was, I was devastated. You talk about grieving, you know, uh, professional losses. I did. I was sobbing in my room as I was writing my two weeks Mm -hmm. notice because Lowell is just such a fantastic place, such a big part of me. And so, um, when I finally made the decision to leave graduate school, it was like, it was like fate intervened because the next day was when the application for the educator position was closing. And so I reapplied and I got the job back. And, um, then a couple months later I got a promotion to a full-time educator and it just, it, it made sense, you know, and I, I love what I do here. I, um, I get the opportunity to do this podcast, you know, because I came back to Lowell and now I'm at this interesting point in my life where like, I love what I do. I love teaching. I love explaining these topics to everybody, but I am still very passionate about, you know, working in physics labs. I worked in a laser lab for three years, four years, something like that. And so now I'm trying to get back into that more, um, science aspect of my education. And so it's, it's interesting to think about, um, this like transitioning of your, of your track, of your focus and, Um, I, I would love it if you could give some advice on like how to go, how to navigate that, you know, how to figure out, um, how to switch tracks like that. Absolutely. So first of all, congratulations on your success and congratulations on your happiness. Most importantly, that you realized that what would make you the most happy. Yes. What would make you the most happy was taking a different track, a different path and the path worked worked well for who you are and what you want and need out of your life and your career. And I think that is tremendous. And not everyone has the ability to be able to even see that, to acknowledge it. So you did it. And I think that's wonderful. So I think I just wanted to acknowledge that for your listeners and for you as well. So when I think about this idea, it goes back to when I went to my advisor. So up until Um, When I was a student at the University of Arizona, up until pretty much my senior year, I was certain I was going to graduate school in mathematics. And there were a couple of different things that happened that sort of pushed me in the direction of maybe this wasn't the right thing for me. Um, Most importantly, that I do not like doing mathematical research. So maybe if I don't like doing (laughs) mathematical research, maybe I shouldn't be a professor of mathematics. I'm just saying. So I went to my mathematics advisor. And I said to him, I said, you know, what else can I do with a mathematics degree? 
um, thinking, because I knew about, of course, being a mathematics professor. I, I had this mm -hmm. vision in my head, this romanticized vision of working for a think tank and doing topological and abstract equations and, topolo and ab abstract algebra problems on whiteboards and blackboards in the hallway, just nerds everywhere, just, just <laughs> nerds and nerds. And it just sounded like so Lovely. fantastic to me. And so, and I knew about teaching and actuarial studies. So I said to my advisor, what else can I do with a mathematics degree? And he literally, and I mean the word literally, literally, he literally turned to me and used the word nothing to describe my career prospects. And I was like, what the heck are you talking oh about? Gosh. Like, I, I, I mean, like, how is that possible? I literally majored in the language of the multiverse and there's yeah. no job out there for somebody like me. How is that even possible? Now, he didn't do that maliciously. He yeah. did it because most people, it, they only know the universe that they occupy. In Girl, you're talking case, to an English major. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. I was asked, exactly. like, are you good at waiting tables? It's like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> oh my God. I'm surprised that somebody didn't ask you, like, oh, can you edit my paper for me? Right. Yeah. Do you know anything yeah. about chocolate? Like, how does chocolate <laughs> think about that uh -huh. so, so I said, you know, the thing that I think about with my advisor is that he is like an ant, an ant in a two-dimensional plane. So he only knows the 2D plane that is the tenure track at a university. Mm -hmm. And just like ants that are wa walking around on the ground, they don't have capacity to see in a third dimension. So they can't look above and look at the mass of ants on the ground and see, oh, this one could go over here or there's a connection between that and that. Similarly, he yes. couldn't see. Mm -hmm. He just had no knowledge. And it wasn't out of lack of trying, or I shouldn't say that. It wasn't out of maliciousness, or it was just ignorance of other universes that existed. Mm -hmm. Now, was it a mistake for him to say the word nothing? Of course it was. You don't ever say that to an advisee. You yeah. say, I don't know any of any, but I can certainly help you discover them. Mm -hmm. um, and you certainly don't make them feel like they're a failure, which was really what I got from him, that I was a mm -hmm. failure because I was not going to graduate school in mathematics and becoming yeah. a professor. And I certainly felt that same pressure because there were students that started with me as physics majors who were in orientation with me in the summer before freshman year, who went all the way through and got their degree in physics and got every award and every, mm -hmm. every graduate program, and then went into graduate school and then went become a professor. I mean, there's definitely that pressure in the environment. But what we have to remember is that other universes exist. If there's one thing that we learned from Star Trek, it is that there is not one universe yes. in the universe. There yes. is a multiverse. Yes. So if that's the case, I love it. Can, can I just say like, I love that you heard that. And then you were like, um, I'm not claiming that energy. No, thanks. Yeah, it was difficult to do. And that's I just want to acknowledge that for everybody is that it's it's difficult to when we are in a culture and when we're in a community that tries to argue that there's only one universe, we are it is very challenging for us to be the 4D creature in a 3D world or a 3D creature in a 2D world. That is a challenge. Mm -hmm. But if anybody is up to that challenge, it's astronomy and physics educated people. Because after all, you are the ones who look into a void. You are willing and brave enough to look into a void and say, not only am I going to better understand that void, but I'm going to define this void. I'm going to understand where this void is in this universe. I mean, that's literally what you do when you look at black holes. And so yes. if you can do uh -huh. that with, with the <laughs> cosmos, why can't we do that with our careers? 
you have that bravery, you have those skills, we can just leverage them and apply them to the career landscape. Mm -hmm. Just a change of perspective. Yeah. I'm really glad um, you brought up the advisor thing because like we're actually um, planning a podcast episode for the future about academic burnout because of how toxic academia can be. And that's just like one example of so many stories I've heard of, especially, especially women in STEM. And like, obviously that's my background. So like, that's all I can really speak on, but Mm -hmm. like, Every single woman I have met in the STEM field has had some issue with academia, whether it's being burnt out, thinking that they have to do better than everyone to be taken seriously, or whether it's just not being taken seriously, even though, you know, they're top in their class. And so, um, I, I feel that because like your professor saying like, there's nothing out there that that's exactly how I felt where all of the people I was graduating, with, uh, graduating with were going on to get their graduate degrees. They were planning on working for like Raytheon or, you know, some big company, Lockheed Martin, something like that. Um, and then everybody else was thinking of going back into academia, maybe going into teaching or something. And so it's just, it's so refreshing to hear someone, you know, validate that after being out of the academia field for a while. Well, and let me add also, I write a column for the American Physical Society's uh, newsletter. Um, the column is called Profiles and Versatility, and we I can send you the link or you can find it online. And I, I started this column, I think I started it in 2004. I honestly don't remember anymore, but it's been a billion years since I started writing it. The column is about physicists So physics educated professionals, people with bachelor's, master's, or PhDs in physics Mm -hmm. who have pursued unexpected, surprising careers. And in all of those years that I've been writing it, I have not repeated a career. And you would not believe the diversity of careers that physicists can pursue. I mean, I have talked to, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just really unbelievable. And just recently, my last my last column that I wrote, which will come out later this year, is about somebody who is a nonprofit executive. She created two nonprofits. She supports women and girls' health around the world. She's a model. She's an actress. She's appeared in a Beyonce video. She oh does God. so many other things. And she's a physicist. And she's also training to be an astronaut. And like to me, oh the physics and the astronomy degrees just give you so much versatility. And so the fact that we can choose for ourselves what we want to do and really stick to this idea of I can define success for myself, that is a difficult task, but it is not outside the boundary of you as a problem solver, you as an astronomer or as a physicist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I fully agree. Because like when I think about physicists who have had unorthodox um like careers, literally the only person I can think of because it's not talked about like ever is Brian May, the lead guitarist of Queen. Oh, yeah. Yes. Like he is the only person I can think of who has had an unorthodox career after getting some degree in physics, astrophysics, something like that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the column that I wrote, I've No, it's not at all. And it's ridiculous because now the majority of physics majors and the majority of astronomy majors do not pursue careers in astronomy or in physics, the traditional sense. In other words, I shouldn't even say that. Let me say it a different way. The majority of physicists, uh, physics and astronomy 
um, degreed individuals, they are getting careers and jobs outside of professorships and outside of academia. So it's no longer the non-traditional path. It's no longer the alternative career because if the majority is pursuing it, that's the mm-hmm. traditional career now. That's yeah. the majority. Mm-hmm. And it's only of select few that are lucky, and luck is the right word here, that mm-hmm. are lucky enough to get a job in academia or to get a professorship or a research position at an observatory or a research institute. It is, yeah. and luck is a huge aspect of it. In fact, I write about that in one of my upcoming columns for your Unicorn Career for Science magazine about the, the role of luck in career building. So if we're looking at so many other careers, why can't we come to a conclusion as advisors and as members of our community that maybe these other careers are not the failures, but these other careers are just part of a continuum of success and the success is defined by the individual. In that column that I write, I've written about physicists who work for the auto industry for oil and gas. I wrote about mm-hmm. a physicist who, two physicists who work as uh, individually, who work as uh, science consultants in Hollywood. I've interviewed <laughs> Elon Musk, who has a Whoa. physics degree. I interviewed uh, somebody who works, who is a dancer. She is a professional ballerina and a quantum physicist and now does <laughs> speaking engagements and dancing engagements oh and gosh. performances around the world. I have interviewed people who work in energy, people who've worked in telecommunications. I work. I interviewed somebody who was a forensic physicist who was called upon in legal cases to um, testify about the physical conditions of a system uh, when there was a lawsuit present. It is really amazing. And of course, science communicators too. It is yeah. really, truly um, amazing, but very heartwarming uh, to see where physicists have gone, and we can use that as fuel for our own imaginations. Well, and um, I I would say that your career is also um, a specific success in this because you also had that STEM, like I guess that academic background in STEM, and now you're... um, I mean, obviously your bio that we said at the beginning speaks for itself, but you know, you're, you're definitely not crunching numbers in a lab. You're inspiring others and doing speaking engagements and consulting and that kind of thing. So I'd say that your own career is a good symbol of the diversity. Thank you. I think it is a symbol of diversity at that, that type of diversity as well. And it just goes to show you that if I can take these seemingly disparate areas and merge them into a career, we can all do that. So for me, I've always had four threads that were woven throughout my entire life. Obviously, I've always been interested in performing arts, comedy, singing, acting. Mm-hmm. I've also always been interested in STEM since I was very, very small. I love science engineering, math, and technology. I love business, have always been interested in marketing and sales and commerce, and I also absolutely love all sorts of different types of communications. I've been writing, uh, I was doing freelance writing even when I was a um, a, um, a, a, in my very first job when I graduated from the University of Arizona. So I thought that when I went to the University of Arizona as a student, that I'd have to pick one, and my goal, of course, was to pick science because that was my true love, my bestie. I picked science. Mm -hmm. The rest of those things would be hobbies. Maybe I'd get to them. Maybe I wouldn't. 
But what I realized is that when we are honest with ourselves about what we need and what we want in our life and our career and what we are good at and the type of communities we want to serve and the type of tasks that we want to do and don't do, when we provide us ourselves with that honesty, when we honor ourselves, we can build a career of our dreams. And so when I began to realize in my very first job, in my very first job, when I graduated from the University of Arizona, I was hired by the department head of the physics department, a wonderful man named Dan Stein, who is still my mentor and good friend. He's coming to my wedding later this year. And this is somebody, and this is somebody, thank you so much. This is somebody who I've known since I was um, 20 years old, just so you know. So I've known him for many, many years and he has been present and such a wonderful, um, addition to my life. So he hired me, uh, he was department and he hired me as director of communications, took a chance on me. This was my very first job. And when he hired me, I began to realize, you know, I'm doing science communications for the physics department. Obviously I'm doing a lot of writing, but I'm doing event planning. So I'm, I'm doing fundraising. So I'm doing business. I'm solving business problems. I'm also doing performing, performing arts. I'm doing physics fun nights and different outreach events where I'm the, 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 the moderator or the host. I'm doing presentations and I'm really enjoying them and I'm infusing them with comedy. I'm really enjoying the science aspect of it. The fact that I'm touching the science, involved in the science, but not being the scientist. I don't want to be the scientist. I want to support the community in my own way. And so when I realized that I could take these four threads and weave them together, that was very enlightening to me. And I encourage all of us to be very cognizant and really take a needs and a wants assessment of our own lives and careers many times. Don't do this once. This is a dynamic process. Do a needs and a wants assessment. See what it is that you need and want out of your career and be honest with yourself about what you enjoy doing. When I think about my undergraduate years, really what stands out to what I enjoyed most combined with the mathematics, because I still love doing math. I and Even today, I solve math problems for fun. Nice. I don't want to do it 24 hours. I do not want to do it for full time as a job. I want to do it as a hobby. But I want to support the mathematicians. I want to support the astronomers and the physicists. But if I look back to what really brought me the most joy as an undergraduate, it was being involved in the Society of Physics Students. I was president of the chapter. No and I helped, Yes, and I helped organize a conference of student chapters in our, in our division of Arizona and New Mexico and uh, University of Texas, El Paso. I loved solving the business problems associated with being president of the chapter. That was my breadcrumb. That was the clue that I should be involved in communications and event planning and business and science communications and science support. But I wasn't cognizant of looking at that because I was so focused in on me going to graduate school and not looking forward to going to graduate school that I couldn't see what was closest to me at that moment, which was my true love. And if I had been wise, if I had just looked to my left and saw, holy macaroni, I love being involved with SPS. I'll give up my weekends and my spring break to paint signs to get money to, for our fundraiser for spring for for SPS, for the Society of Physics Students. That's what I want to spend my time on, not thinking about graduate school, if I had been cognizant of that, maybe I would have saved time. But you know what? I needed the time to explore and to improve my craft. We can all use the time. You are the first person who 
like I didn't go to college with to talk about the Society of Physics students. I was actually an officer in our chapter <gasps> of the Society of Physics students. Yes, queen. Yeah. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I know. I heard that. That's why I was like, oh my gosh. Because <laughs> yeah, no, I was an officer for uh, like a year. I held uh, two different off- offices. I was the social media representative. And um, I think I was also the treasurer at one point. And yeah, that was just so much fun. Just like having this community of uh, people in physics, you know, like uh, a lot of what we did was we actually would have our meetings and we would have the younger students bring their homework so that we could all work on it together, you know, trying to help them with these like intro physics courses because like people, people don't really talk about this, but I mean, like personally for me and a lot of my friends, like we've really struggled in the intro classes more than we did in the upper level classes Hmm. because like so many of them were made for more of like a um, they're like weed out classes. And I hate that term. I hate weed out classes. I think that is so ridiculous. And like a lot of the engineer based, um, physics classes, especially. Yeah. Like university physics one, two, those were rough. And so SPS, it helped a lot of people. So I'm glad you brought it up because I haven't heard anyone else who's been a part of SPS. (laughs) It was, there were, there were a couple of defining experiences that I had as an undergraduate that really just, when I think back, just brought me so much joy and really just awakened in me a curiosity and a love for the universe. And SPS is absolutely one of them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I, uh, I definitely also agree with Haley about hating the term weed out classes. It just makes me think of the word gatekeeping, like, uh, you know, let me scare people off. Let me, let me try to make this as hard as possible instead of making it more accessible to people. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like it's a really sick, it's a sick system when we, instead of, yeah, instead of saying, Hey, this is so great. You want to be a physics major? Well, this is your first introduction. This is where you get to learn the skills that are going to help you be successful. This is where you learn the culture, the languages, where you learn the Mm -hmm. thinking, the framework. This Mm -hmm. is going to be fantastic. Wouldn't it be better if we did it that way instead of saying, this is where you're going to fail. This is where you're going to mess up and get the hell out and major in something else. Yeah, I I hate when professors do that. And it starts so young because it's like, oh, well, only X, Y, Z who go to MIT and Yale will do X, Y, Z. And, oh, you need to be at the top of your class and all of that. And if you're an AB student, you just are automatically like, okay, well, I'm never going to have that career. Guess I'll look at something else because it's like, yes. It's mm-hmm. so, it's so easy to, to doubt. It's easier to doubt yourself when you're young than it is to believe in yourself because of the way that academia, even starting in public school is structured to be that like cutthroat and competitive. And, uh, it's terrifying and it's like, oh, okay, well, I already know I'm not good enough because I'm not in the gifted and talented top 2% of my class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me speak to that for a moment because I often get that question from coaching clients and then also from um, people that when I'm giving speeches, particularly at the um, American Astronomical Society, people will, I I do career coaching and consulting for for AAS and I'll be doing that at the the, um, summer meeting in Pasadena. And so I will, so people will come, they'll meet with me privately and I'll look at their CVs or resumes and help them think about their careers. So it's really whatever career question they have. And I have a lot of people who will come to me, show me their CV. They may be in graduate school or a postdoc and 
And they're not going to the Ivy Leagues. They're not going to, they haven't had experience working in or going to school in the marquee prestige names that we know around the world. And I certainly did not have that. I went to a state university, the University of Arizona, and I went there because it was cheap. Let's be Mm -hmm. honest, okay? It was much cheaper than even Rutgers University. And I'm from New Jersey, New York. Rutgers was more expensive for in-state than the U of A was for out-of-state at the time. Oh, gosh. So- And I did also come to the U of A for astronomy, but of course I could have done that anywhere and then gone to the U of A for graduate school, but that's another story. Anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. The point that I wanted to make is I have a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I'm not going to be able to get a job in astronomy because I don't go to Yale, I don't go to MIT, or Mm -hmm. I'm never going to be able to compete. And I agree that there's a piece of that, but at the same time, I don't want anybody to think that they're not going to be able to achieve their dreams just because they didn't have the pocketbook, they didn't have the wallet mm-hmm. or the budget or the ability of whatever kind to be able to go to a school that costs $75,000 a year, or for whatever reason, they did not get into that graduate program, or they're not doing a postdoc with Dr. Mm-hmm. God. I am not a fan mm-hmm. of thinking that we have to be only associated with names prestigious names of any kind, individuals or universities or even whatever types of organizations to achieve our goals. We may have to think more creatively. We may have to think out of the box. That's where becoming a career entrepreneur comes from. And we will have to invest in the networking aspect of it, the building of the relationships. But it is not without within, when it is not outside of the realm of true thinking, of reality, that you could potentially have a career at a school that brings you joy with students that bring you joy or at whatever organization happens to be without a marquee name on your on your resume. There are people that I went to the University of Arizona with, I do talk about this, people who were knew exactly what they wanted to do. They got their degree in physics, then they went to graduate school, and they went to prestigious universities for graduate school. And then they went and did a postdoc. And they have come to me years later asking me for advice on their careers because they're not happy. They're, they're yeah. literally working for universities that we are taught to covet from the time we are knee-high to a grasshopper, they're working Mm. for those universities and they are not happy. And they come to me for career advice, somebody who graduated also from a state university. Yeah. I do not agree with the idea. And I refuse to accept it. I'm going to use your language. I will not, what did you say? I'm not going to host. I don't don't claim that energy. I love that phrase. I choose not to claim that energy. And I choose to say, you know what? I didn't get a degree from this name or I didn't work with Dr. God. Screw that. I'm going to still build a career of my dreams that allows me to serve my community, honors me, honors my community. I'm going to have fun and I'm not going to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, um, I identify with that. I went to a state school because of finances. Um, and I was actually at one point very interested in astronomy. I used my extra time, um, in school to help the astronomy professor grade papers, but we only had one astronomy class and she was trying to get me transferred to, I think it was UT university of Texas, um, to pursue astronomy. And I just, I couldn't because of, uh, just finances. I couldn't afford it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I still found myself working at an observatory later doing something that I'm arguably just better at than I, couldn't do math and that kind of thing. 
So, um, <laughs> but I got a lot of slack for that when I was starting my career because I started in publishing and it was very much like, oh, that's a three-tier school. It was a state university. And I was like, well, I guess mm-hmm. this is a place that I need to work. If you guys are going to judge me for my, uh, you know, the, the tools that I've used in my toolbox that I had accessible to me and not for my output, then uh, I'll find someone who appreciates what I can do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, totally. And that was actually, um, that was also a column I recently wrote too for um, your unicorn career was about do not stay with people or places that do not value you for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A general rule in life, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, 100% yeah. Of any kind. Yes. So uh, one last thing I definitely want to talk about while we have a bit of time left is, um, so I know our perspective, obviously, all of us were women in our respective fields. uh, And the two fields that uh, you have focused in on science and business are heavily male dominated fields. And I'm curious uh, what your experience has been like from your perspective and um, what any issues or hurdles did you have to overcome in that, in that regard? Yeah. So let me say, thank you for bringing that up. Let me say that as a woman in male dominated fields, um, do I face challenges? Hell yes, I do every single day. Um, and let me give you an example of that. Um, I have been doing career coaching of scientists for many, many years. I am an expert in it. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you the truth, just like Mm -hmm. you and your listeners. When you have expertise, be not afraid to stand up and say, I have expertise in this. This is my area. It is useful for Mm -hmm. you to hear it. And it is useful for your confidence to be able to know that this is a fact, not an opinion. So I have expertise in in helping scientists and engineers build unicorn careers. I've written and spoken and coached on this for years. And a few years ago, I was courting a, a very large professional STEM society, one that we all know. And I had been courting them for quite a while and I had sent them all sorts of, they put me through all sorts of different rigmarole. I did a proposal and I had meetings. And anyway, I I went to visit them at their headquarters um, and I was meeting with the the gatekeeper and I'll use that word. Yeah, I was meeting with the gatekeeper Hmm. and he said, you know, Elena, you don't have a degree in science. You don't have a PhD in science. Why should we hire you? to give talks about how scientists can get a job. I mean, we could just get a PhD in physics to do it. And, you know, that's a great example of like what you could call as a woman, and I'm speaking as a woman, Mm -hmm. a microaggression. Because what that's doing in that moment is it's basically saying, well, you know, even though you have years of experience and credentials in this Mm -hmm. and tons of results and evidence that you do this, I still don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I got to say that I really thought that he said that to this day because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would have said that to a man. So what did I say in that moment? I said, well, there's two things I have to respond to that. First of all, getting a PhD in physics does not give you expertise in getting a job in physics. It gives you mm-hmm. expertise in doing one narrow field research in physics. My expertise is in helping physicists and other people get jobs. That is what I know. That's what I've spent years cultivating and growing. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that 
given all of these years of experience, this is the value that I bring to this role, this diversity of experience and this wealth and breadth of experience. Now, I will say that he still felt, I could sense that he still was not sure whether or not he was going to hire me. He ultimately gave me a contract and then reneged on the contract. So my Mm. gut instinct in that moment where I felt this guy was a jerk and he was not going to value me for me, but I went forward anyway, was right. I should have listened to my gut, which is a gift that we give ourselves when we listen to our gut. But this is an example that many women face every day and perhaps, and excuse me, not perhaps, definitely other underrepresented minority individuals who are not overly represented in the STEM fields or in business or whatever field we happen to be in. We are constantly mm-hmm. faced with s- situations where we have to prove ourselves and we are undervalued. When faced with a man, uh, particularly a white man in that situation, that person is going to get the job without a question. They're going to expect that he's going to deliver excellence and I have to somehow prove it, even though I have evidence that shows that. So I will yeah. say, first of all, that it is, I wanted to acknowledge that it is absolutely happening. And mm-hmm. second of all, I will say that there are employers, colleagues, and partners, and and organizations that do value you, that do appreciate you for who you are, for you as a person, as a human, and the diverse lived experiences that you bring. And if you are faced with somebody who clearly disrespects you when they should be respecting you the most, in the most way, if they're courting you, if they want you to work for them, that means that they're engaging you to encourage you to invest something in them, right? They're going to be investing money in you. You're going to be investing your life, your research, your work in them. If they're courting you and disrespecting you in the courtship, guess what they're going to do when they hire you? And so I just say, keep your eyes open. There are organizations that will value you, that will respect you. And if you see one that doesn't, screw them, go on to another one. Find the place that does value you because they do exist. Yeah, I have a unique experience with that because I my name was Cody, right? It's a boy's name. And when I had my agency, um, I would get courted or like, you know, possibly take on these big projects and I would meet with the um, the project owners and that kind of thing. And several times I would walk into that meeting and they would think that I was the assistant to the owner of the company and they would wait. And I'd be there like, okay, we're ready to get started. They're like, oh, you're a Cody, you're the owner and you're a woman. Mm. And like, they would be so shocked by that. And I'd be like, yes, I am. And a few times they would like start to, whereas all of our communications before were very much like, oh, we want to hire you. This is so great. Let's do our discovery meeting. To then it was another interview where I had to prove myself. I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm done proving myself to men. If my awards and uh, portfolio don't speak for itself, then you need to make up a decision on what you're looking for. And I just got so tired of hitting so much resistance once they found out I was a woman because uh, so many people will deny that experience and say like, oh, well, it probably wasn't because you're a woman. It was pro- probably because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, it's pretty clear. Like, <laughs> it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's that gut instinct comes from us being able to like understand our surroundings and take up context, context clues from a situation. Um, yep. It definitely well, and happens. Well, the thing is, is that, Yeah. And the thing is, is that no one will ever have the full amount of data about a situation that they need or want to make a decision, but no one will have more data about a situation than you being in that situation. 
or Mm -hmm. no one will have more data about how you feel and what you observe in that situation than you. In other words, for the listeners, the data about that we gather about ourselves, which includes non-quantifiable units like our gut instinct, like the Mm -hmm. feeling that we get from another person, those things are just as important to qualify and to acknowledge as the quantifiable units. Will they pay me this much money? Will I work on this type of project? And the data that we gather about a situation should never be um, not reviewed and not evaluated fully. There will be things that we will see and witness and observe that we can't even necessarily put into words. It's maybe just a feeling and a sense that this is the right place for us Or it could be a sense that this is going to be a nightmare and I should run Mm -hmm. and you should listen to that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And like, um, I don't have a ton of experience in the professional world. I'm only, I'll be 24 next uh, month. So like, yay, um, congrats. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I graduated a couple of years ago, Lowell, I've been here for five years. So this is like really what I know best. And, um, it's just, it's wild to me to hear these stories of like, um, all of these microaggressions that happen. And like Lowell is a fantastic place. Like we have so many women working here who are incredibly talented and, um, especially like I I love our educators. I mean, I'm, I'm an educator, you know, they're the ones I interact with most, but like even our astronomers, our female astronomers are fantastic. And it just, it, it makes me so sad to see like, Um, like for example, when I first started here, I I was an 18 year old girl teaching groups of people, all ages, all different backgrounds about astronomy. And so of course I always got the sense that there were quite a few people who came up here who just didn't take me seriously, you know, because I'm a young girl. It's, they know better Mm -hmm. than me, even though this is something that I am dedicating my life to, you know, and it's just, it's, it's so heartbreaking to see that. And so I, um, I did want to ask, like, I would have loved to have someone like you to talk to when I first started here, because I, I want to ask, like, what kind of advice would you give young women in STEM, uh, dealing with these kinds of issues? So one is the first piece of advice I would give them is to go back to the data that you have. So you are not being, don't let somebody gaslight you. Don't let somebody convince you that what you observe is not true uh, or what you experience or what you feel is not true. So what you see happening, what feels right and what feels wrong is truth because you are the one who's observing it. So that's the number one thing. Second of all, I would really aim to diversify your networks because what you want to do is you want to ultimately have what I call a personal board of directors. And I've written about this too, where it's in your network, you've identified a number of different people and they, these are from diverse communities, diverse careers, organizations, industries, different levels in their careers. Um, They do not have to be the um, CEO or the executive director of an organization. They can be a 
colleague who is 24 years old. Uh, they can be whomever. But the idea is that these people you've been networking with, you see that they truly have your back. They support you and they will be on your side. They can give you, um, uh, you know, um, information about how to analyze and navigate challenging circumstances. And they will be objective in giving you advice, uh, in helping you to make the right choice for you. So when you diversify your networking, then what you get is access to people that can be part of your board of directors. And these people, they are never actually assembled. They don't know that the other person exists. It's just your mm -hmm. own personal board of directors. It's a, basically a group of people that exist worldwide who, when you have a challenge, you can call on. So that's the second thing I would think of is really make sure that you are constantly networking to build that personal board of directors. But the third thing also is related to networking. And that the idea of networking is not what can I get from you? It's actually the most honorable endeavor in which you can engage. Networking is about what can I do for you? What can we do together to create something fresh and innovative? So when you think about networking that way, it becomes a mind shift because now networking is not me trying to trick you or manipulate you or put one over on you trying to get, get you to give me a job or sneak mm -hmm. something to you. Networking becomes an act of generosity because networking at its core is a spectrum of activities that aims for a win-win alliance where we're both providing value to each other over time and we're aiming to build a relationship for the long haul. So with that idea of networking, we can use networking, we can leverage networking at any time in our lives, and we can start earlier rather than later. We can start as an undergrad, we can start as an early career professional, we can start today, we can start tomorrow. It doesn't matter, but the point is we are doing it, and we're talking to people in different communities so we can get different ideas of different paths, different opportunities, different needs, different walls that are impeding innovation that I might be able to knock over, different gaps that I could potentially help fill. In other words, we are getting ammunition to build our unicorn career. And we are also getting an army of people worldwide who can help us when we are navigating a challenge. But the networking is so helpful because it gives us a mm -hmm. constant diverse influx of inspiration where we start to see different universes that exist. So for example, last year, when I started talking with a new community, I was diversifying my own network and I started learning about a different aspect of the professional speaking career, the professional speaking business that I hadn't really thought of very much I hadn't really thought of much at all. And when mm -hmm. I started talking to people and hearing about how they were running their speaking business and how they were incorporating this tactic, it opened up a new universe of potential for me, a new universe of possibility of where I could take my business. And that's why when I said earlier, I'm doing something now that I did not expect one year ago, it is absolutely because of the networking that I did in 2021 mm -hmm. that allowed me to do this, take this new tactic in my business, which opened me completely up to a new kind of business and a new amount of business that I never would have had exposure to. That's one small example of the universe of potential that opens up when we network. So it also gives us a knowledge that when a professor says to us, there's nothing you can do, or you're not going to mm -hmm. be good enough, or, you know, I think you should probably quit physics because, you know, you're having trouble in E&M. When yeah. you are faced with that, when you've been networking, you can see that that is one small-minded peon in the middle of an entire infinite sea 
of peons, many of which are actually much more than a peon. They are people mm-hmm. who can actually make a difference and help us to see the huge potentiality that we have. So I would say start the networking early on because it will cushion mm-hmm. you against any sort of jerk that may come in contact with you, may have the unfortunate uh, experience of coming in contact with you and will allow you to um, fortify your feelings and your confidence when you're faced with people who want to drag you down because you don't deserve that. You deserve to be dragged up by yourself because you have that power, you have that ability, you have that choice because after all, you are STEM goddesses and gods in the multiverse. You rule the multiverse. You can create a unicorn career that brings you joy, that brings you success and allows you to serve your community. You have that possibility, you have that potential, and you should not be deterred by anyone. I totally agree that having this network of um, other people who can like empower you and give you guidance is critical in any successful career. And speaking on that, where can our listeners buy your book? Where can they hire you? Where can they, where can they book you for speaking engagements? Like what is the best place? Um, now that we've teased our audience with how amazing you are, where can they, I know you're writing a book right, right now, right? That's the, uh, the one that you're working on that's coming up. Uh, and you have a book networking for nerds that came out, uh, in, it was that 2015. Yes. So they can buy, you, you can all buy networking for nerds anywhere you buy books. Um, So certainly Amazon, but if you want to support local bookshops, I appreciate that. And you can buy it at your local bookshop. You just order it, you order through them. Um, Mm -hmm. You can hire me. You can go to my website, elenalevine.com or better yet, connect with me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is Elena G. Levine and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you do so, I will send you a free Calendly link. So I will send you a link to meet with me for free for 15 minutes to answer any career questions that any of your listeners have. This is a gift I'm giving you. So 15 minutes, they can book a meeting directly with me and we will talk about whatever career questions they have privately and of course, confidentially. Um, And that's something I wanted to give them too. And we can also talk if they want to hire me for coaching or speaking or some other purpose, we could always talk about that as well. But best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn, Elena G. Levine. I'm also on Twitter, Elena G. Levine. And they can also go to my website, elenalevine.com. And I'll, I'll give you that link. That's amazing. I can give you the Calendly link. Um, where they can make an appointment with me or do you, okay. So that, and I can email that to you as well. So it's, you know, Mm -hmm. the Calendly, Calendly Mm -hmm. Calendly.com. Yeah. mm -hmm. Dash. So Calendly.com slash, excuse me, Elena dash Levine slash 15 M I N. Well, thank you so much. This has been the most, like, I genuinely think this has been the most important conversation we have had on this podcast. And Mm -hmm. I am just so honored to have you. Um, well, it's my honor to be here. Thank you so much. I can't believe how fast that went. I have a billion questions for you. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for being here. And, um, to all our listeners out there, uh, please, 
please join our Discord channel, follow our Twitter. Uh, we'll be putting these links in uh, the Discord. I can add them onto our Twitter page as well. And um, if you have any questions for us, go ahead and shoot a tweet our way. And then, uh, like Elena said, if you have any questions for her, reach out on uh, LinkedIn and sign up, sign up for that 15 minutes. Thank you so much, Cody and Haley. This was such a pleasure. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.